please turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of this chapter this morning. And as you're turning there, I, I came across an interesting article yesterday. It was regarding um, a city that in, in 2008, there was a, a Dutch newspaper poll that voted the city of Charleroi, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Charleroi is what I'm going with. They voted that city to be the ugliest city in the world. And honestly, in looking at the pictures of the city, I, I can think of plenty of places that are in worse shape. Um, the voting, I think, was weighted to places in the Belgian region. Uh, but it still felt like a, a low blow to those who lived there and appreciated the charm of their city. If it's no doubt, though, everyone could see that the city had been trending downward in terms of its aesthetic beauty. Right, buildings throughout the downtown area were in perpetual state of repair. Um, there, there seemed to be as much exposed scaffolding as there were open and operating businesses. Uh, newspapers and magazine articles were just constant. They were pointing out over and over the, the growing piles of litter and the run-down buildings whose exterior was just filled with graffiti. Ironically, all of that negative publicity began to attract tourists. And the increasing popularity of the city even captured the attention of savvy investors. So that the result has been a, a recovery and a renewal of this, this city that's at the heart of the Rust Belt of Northern Europe. Uh, and it's really been only a decade since it was voted the ugliest city in the world. So we really, I think, as we consider these things, we, we cannot fathom how, how different this world is from when God first created it. All right, it's, it's difficult to imagine the impact that the fall had upon this world. Uh, we do not know the pristine beauty of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve enjoyed. Now, we certainly have our ideal locations. We have some, some taste for things of beauty, right? We have, we have some semblance of that, certainly as we get out into creation as we like to go to Yosemite in this region, right? We, we can appreciate those things as beautiful. And yet, even there, we don't know what, what has resulted from the sin and corruption that intruded this good world that God made. And so it leaves us constantly longing for something more. That theme really spans the Bible from beginning to the end. God created a good world, but our first parents lost the paradise they were born into. And then the rest of the Bible is about how God is going to restore paradise and ensure that it can never be lost again. And so that's what we're looking at here, is the conclusion to that work in the new heavens and new earth. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the promises that you've given to us of our future. Or those who belong to Christ, who are united to him, have, have been guaranteed this inheritance. 
And so we look forward to it, cause us to, to have that kind of longing, that appropriate and right longing. Not that we would become discontent in our current situation, you're sovereign over this now, but Lord, that you would give us a, a healthy thirst and a craving for what it's, or that we would want more of you. So Lord, help us to have eyes to see this truth. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have hearts that are softened, that we would be encouraged by this truth. And may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I want us to consider three questions as we look at this passage. And the first one is this. And we'll spend most of our time on this question. But what is new? What is new about the new heavens and new earth? Well, the new heaven and new earth replace the first heaven and first earth. These are the things that fled away. Remember in verse 11 of chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. Remember the, the throne just took over the entire globe as God carried out his great white throne judgment. And now we see this new heaven and new earth descending. So what is removed in order for the new to appear? Well, I think Peter provides some of the best commentary on this subject. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, he tells us, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? And godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, 
in which righteousness dwells. So this, this present world will receive a total makeover. Uh, but that does not suggest an utter discarding of the first heaven and first earth. There's, this world is dissolved and cleansed in order to be rebuilt and renewed. Right, the word for new implies a change in quality here. So it's remodeled and reinforced. That's not some minor repairs. Right, there's an utter and complete remodeling of this world rather than its complete destruction. That and I think this is consistent with understanding the effects of the worldwide flood right, that, that occurred in Noah's time. The world was not destroyed but cleansed during that time. Uh, we see something similar in the concept of resurrection. Right? The, the body that is raised is new and glorified, but there's still some connection with the original body. Otherwise, why, why have a resurrection at all? Right? There's, there's some remaining relevance to the original. So the purpose of this renovation is to create a place for the holy city, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven and verse 2 says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem represents God's dwelling with his saints in perfect harmony. And it represents the restoration of perfect fellowship. That was lost in paradise in Genesis 3. A voice from the throne declares this holy city to be a permanent dwelling place for God with man. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, even as he's looking upon the promised land that God says he would give him. Hebrews 11 tells us that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It always pointed forward to this promised land. Right, this communion between God and man was what the tabernacle and the temple always foreshadowed. God provided temporary measures of maintaining a relationship with his covenant people throughout the Old Testament age. Under the Old Covenant, there was these temporary measures that were in place. Then under the New Covenant, God inaugurates the blessings of relating to him through Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us, as we read in John 1.14. And that, that term is literally, he tabernacled among us. And so the fulfillment of our dwelling with his people was in his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And because of our union with Christ by faith, we actually become the temples of the living God, the temple of the living God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. So God is making all things new in verse 5 of chapter 21 here. Creation will arrive at her ultimate completion. The work that began at Christ's first coming is now being consummated upon his return. And that word making is a prophetic present. Right? It's, he, it, it speaks so confidently of a future fulfillment that it's as if it's already happening. And that's the same in the next verse where it says it is done in verse 6. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. God will declare his work to be fully and finally complete. Again, 
through Christ, this work has already been inaugurated on the cross when Jesus cried out, it is finished. You see that parallel there so that at the beginning of this present age, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And at the very end of the consummation and the beginning of a new age, in the new heaven and new earth, God says it is done. The work has already been fully accomplished in an objective sense at the cross. Christ has paid the penalty. He has established and assured the inheritance for his saints. But we await the fullness of our subjective experience of that great work. Right? In time, God then applies that work to us. And so all of this is truly the work of God. He is the Alpha and Omega. That's a, a merism, which means that God is the beginning and the end and everything between. Right? So he is in sovereign control over all time. And this world, as we learned in Sunday school, is every part of it is his. He doesn't have gaps where he loses control. It's all his. All time is his. And so in Christ, we taste the future inheritance that is described in its consummated state here. It's the spirit of Christ who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The author of Hebrews says that the church is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We have already been granted access through the blood of Christ into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so that's why Paul describes anyone who is in Christ as a new creation. They are no longer identified by their old nature, even though they remain hindered by it. Jesus revealed his love for his bride, the church, when he gave himself up for her. Christ is now doing a work of sanctification and renewal in each one of us. An ongoing work of renovation, preparing us, making us fit so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Or, as we just read in Revelation 21, verse 2, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this passage emphasizes what Christ has done for us individually, but there's also this collective component, right? This corporate aspect. This passage emphasizes the, the corporate aspect of our communion, so that the universal church is, is made up of individuals who are collectively the bride of Christ. One, the bride. Not the brides of Christ, but the bride of Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we have an intimate communion with God and one another. The, the Lord's Supper is a, a sacred representation of that covenantal blessing that we celebrate at the end of our worship service. And we ought never allow our differences among one another to carry on to the point that we misrepresent the Savior who died to bring about that unity. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Our fellowship should never become so strained that we fail to pursue the fulfillment of Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, 11, that we would become one even as the Father and the Son 
are one. Right, that goal must propel us to persevere through the most challenging trials, knowing that what awaits is, is a glory where we're all united. And yes, we recognize that we're hindered now by sin, but we are being prepared for the glory that awaits. And so what is new is glorious and beautiful, but in the second question, I want to answer what is past. Well, at the, at the end of the first verse, we learned that the sea was no more. I just kind of, um, we didn't consider that, but previously I've pointed out in other sermons how, how the ancient audience considered the sea as the realm of chaos and evil. And that was, that was kind of the symbolism of the sea. Uh, so the absence of the sea then points to the elimination of evil. There, will be, there won't be any destructive body of water like the lake of fire in the new heavens and new earth. That means there will be no possibility of a future challenge to Christ's reign. And in the visions, John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. That won't even be possible in the new heaven and new earth because there's no sea. It's the ability for evil to arise out of. There will be no possibility of sin. And so as the removal of the sea represents the... Rem- or there's also an idea here that the removal of the sea represents the removal of barriers among the community that inhabits the new heaven and new earth. Remember who's writing this and where he's writing from. John is on an island surrounded by a a great wide chasm of the sea. A barrier between him and his covenant brothers and sisters. Right, this community that he has shepherded and pastored in Ephesus, he has to communicate to them through writing. That he's separated from them. Well, that separation will be removed in the new heaven and new earth. That longing for a deep and abiding fellowship will be fully and finally achieved at Christ's return. So the figurative elimination of the sea, and I do believe that's figurative. I, some people say, but the sea is so glorious. It's so beautiful. I love going out to the sea. I have a good friend who was, a, who was in the Navy. It's one of his places. It's one of the w- places he goes to, to to get away from the chaos and to appreciate God's good creation. Well, well again, just as we've been seeing throughout Revelation, these are symbolic, right? And so it, it's, not, it's not suggesting that there will be no such thing as a, a place to go sailing, right? no sea, no place to enjoy God's creation there. But the symbol, symbolism of the evil and the chaos is removed, the removal of barriers. So the figurative elimination of the sea is, is related to what we read in verse 4, these further elements of the effects of the fall. Right? They have all passed away. That, that word passed away is repeated from verse uh, 1. And earth had passed away. Look at then in verse 4. At the very end of verse 4, the former things have passed away. So there's a connection here between 1 and 4. In fact, it's a, an allusion to, uh, um, to Isaiah. But he's, he's broken it up with this, this picture as well of the holy city, New Jerusalem. 
But dwelling with God in the new heaven and new earth means that there will be no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. All of these former things will pass away. Isaiah prophesied of a time in, in chapter 65, verses 20 through 25, he prophesied of a time when infant mortality would never occur. Uh, no, lives would never, uh, no lives would ever be cut short. The earth would always yield its produce. God's people would live in a place where no foreign enemy could ever enter their houses and plunder their goods. God would always answer their prayers. Conflict, even among the animals, would disappear so that the lion lies down with the lamb. No pain would ever be experienced. No destruction would ever fall. The fullness of Isaiah's vision will not be experienced until saints enter into the new heaven and new earth. This is the consummation of every promise that pointed forward to this passage. Those who belong to Christ by faith have already been assured that they presently are not under condemnation. Romans 8.1. However, the knowledge that our sin still infects everything we do, even our best works, means that grief and regret remain our constant companions in this life. Even as we're repenting, a proper repentance a recognition of grief and hatred for our sin. And so even as we're honoring the Lord, we still experience the effects of the fall. And But that will no longer be the case in eternity. In our eternal state, there we will forget what is past, no longer influenced by anything that might reduce our full enjoyment of God. If you've placed your faith in Christ, then you can be assured that your everlasting joy will be entirely unhindered by sin and its effects. And so we'll conclude with this last question, what is required? Amen. What is required? In the second half of verse 6, God promises to satisfy the thirsty. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The psalmist convey a thirst for God's presence. The language alludes to Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, that's, that's the challenge we have to answer now. How can God quench our thirst without any kind of payment? How can he quench your thirst for him when you still remain infected by sin. It can only be satisfied through Jesus Christ. 
we cannot bring anything that would merit salvation, that would merit pardon for sin. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that's what he said to the woman from Samaria, right, that he would offer living water. Christ alone could satisfy her thirst. In John 7, 37, again to the crowd on the last day of the Feast of Booths, he says the same thing to them, that he offers living water. And so when we come to Christ by faith, we immediately know something of the joy of our salvation. But we can also be confident, as Paul says to the Philippian church, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is, upon his return, he brings that work to its full and final completion. So the hope of our eternal reward increases the joy of every heart that thirsts for Christ. Do you thirst? Do you long to be in the presence of God? Do you long to receive the inheritance that awaits? The purpose in, in revealing all of this to believers now is so that we might persevere until we have fully received our heritage. That's what we see there in verse 7. Those who conquer will have this heritage. So those who conquer will receive all the benefits and privileges of our adoption into the family of God, of which we've already been begun to receive those blessings. They'll be fully and finally received the day of his return, Derek Thomas says, the guarantee of the need for the redeemed does not lessen one whit the need for a diligent pursuit of holiness. Heaven is gained through perseverance and not apart from it. And so we are justified, we are sanctified, we are glorified, objectively at the cross, subjectively in our experience, in time, as God applies them to us. And this is all in contrast to what takes place for those in verse 8. John concludes with a warning to those who cowardly give in, to the faithless, the detestable, Those who do not persevere will not enter the new heaven and new earth. They went out from us because they were not of us. 1 John 2.19. So those who choose to remain in their sin will be eternally condemned, cast into the lake of fire, experiencing the second death. Those characterized by a life of sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. So even though believers once walked in these very same sins, and they remain vulnerable to committing them still, they have also been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. So believers are no longer identified by their union with sin, but their union 
with Christ. They are no longer enslaved to the power of sin, but they are characterized by the work of God's Spirit who has set them free. And so the theme of this chapter is really not so much about the renewal of a place as much about the renewal of a people in order that they might be fit for eternal fellowship with God. Right? It's the unlimited fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden that made it so wonderful. But once they sinned, they sought to hide themselves from him. He's immediately cut off. Even from one another, right? The results of sin. They knew they were naked and they felt shame for the first time. And because of that, they were no longer fit for that unhindered communion. And since then, humanity has had a longing for the recovery of that perfect harmony with their creator, but sin has marred their ability to find it. And so there is an ugliness to the city of man. Presently marred by depravity that makes the good news of the gospel such good news. Our neighbors desperately need to hear that a renewed city awaits. And it'll be a city that is missing what is so often characterized what, what so often characterizes this present world. It'll be a city without conflict and division. It'll be a city that has no need for hospitals or sickbeds. It'll be a city in which a funeral will never take place. It'll be a city in which our deepest longings are forever quenched. And since God is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation, He alone is capable of making us fit for heaven. And it's all the more remarkable that His only requirement of us is that we recognize our need and turn to Him. And you have the opportunity to do so even now as we respond in song, and in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious picture of the new heavens and new earth. We thank you that you have given us an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, that is imperishable, that is kept in heaven for us. And as we enter into that inheritance after Christ's return, Lord, we will, for the first time, understand all that we've been longing for. To be able to come before you unhindered by sin and its effects, undistracted from your glory and your beauty. Lord, that is what we thirst for. That is our longing. That is our desire. If we are rightly transformed by your spirit. And so, Lord, re renew in us that passion for your beauty. Renew in us a passion for your glory. And, and for anyone who may not have responded 
to the free offer of the gospel, Lord, I pray that they might do so even now. That they might turn from their sin and turn to you as their only hope. Lord, you are sovereign over this entire world. And you are sovereign over all time. And so, Lord, we depend upon you to do a work in the hearts of those that you draw near to yourself. We pray that you might use this song to encourage us to do just that, Lord, to, to turn to you. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.